Good evening, Evergreen. I'm glad that you're a part of this uh, broadcast. Our Wednesday evening teaching series is from First and Second Thessalonians. It's called Living the Future. It probably feels a little bit like we're living a sort of bizarre apocalyptic future right now, cut off from each other, doing things remotely. Um, I can think of any number of movies that come to mind that describe this kind of scenario. And so who knows, maybe we're, uh, we're, we're breaking new ground and, and, and Hollywood was prophetic all along. We'll, we'll see. I prefer to stick with the text that I know is prophetic. And so let's, uh, let's spend some time in the word of God. When I was a kid, one of the ways that I learned was by repetition. In fact, if you ask my mother, that's probably the primary way that I learned. It must be the primary way that I learned because she repeated the same things over and over and over and over again. Now she would tell you that it's because, uh, that I was a slow learner. I prefer to think that she was just emphasizing reminders that I already knew to help me grasp solidly what, what it was she was trying to get across. I think she must have done a good job because I can still uh, have, I can still hear her voice saying certain things. I jotted down some, some uh, statements that have never left me, lessons that I learned by sheer repetition as a child. Things like, never talk to strangers. She would tell me, look both ways before you cross the street. Even when I was much older, she would still remind me, look both ways before you cross the street. Don't talk with your mouth full. I, I'm not sure why she ever said that to me because that wasn't a problem for me, but, but she, she said it a lot, so it must have been a concern. Uh, this one I, I still hate to this day. What's the magic word? Oh, my stars. I've heard that a million times in my life. When I was a teenager, she said, call if you're going to be late. That was a pretty regular reminder. But my favorite one is is one that I carried over for my kids that uh, that I still think about occasionally. She used to say these words, go now because we're not stopping. All reminders given repetitively so that certain basic attitudes and actions would be locked in to my mind and my behavior. We're in a series of lessons from the books of First and Second Thessalonians, and and in this lesson we're going to look at First Thessalonians chapter three. It is a chapter of reminders. Paul is talking to a church that, unlike some of the other churches in the New Testament, a church that was a bright shining example for other churches. A church that had influence and impact because they were living the gospel properly. In this chapter, Paul is going to talk about some things that they clearly already knew and they're clearly already doing, but there's always value, even the things that we know to do, there's value to be periodically reminded of those things so that they never slip, they never uh, drift away, they never fall down the list of our priorities. Things that Paul wanted this good, solid church in Thessalonica to not only do and do well, but to continue to do well and to get better at. So, I, I've called this, uh, this lesson Remembering Our Identity because he really describes what they already know about who they are 
about the way that they live, but he just wants them to remember it, to recall it, to keep it in the front of their brains. So if you'll open your Bibles with me, we're going to read through First uh, Thessalonians chapter 3 and uh, and break this down. You probably, in your translation, you can probably see that the, the chapter is already broken into three sections. It has uh, subheadings, and we're just going to take those one at a time and uh, and see what Paul has to tell that church and, by extension, what he has to say to us. The first one is he's going to remind them about persecution. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. He says, therefore, therefore, let's stop right there. Chapter 3, because he starts it with therefore, is tied to chapter 2. So let me remind you where we were. Paul finished chapter 2 by talking about the relationship that he had with this church in Thessalonica. That they were his pride and joy. They were the glory of his ministry. And that he was yearning to be with them. That he was aching to see them again. He has a deep love. He has a, a desire to be with them. And and he's proud of them. All of that is in the end of chapter 2. So therefore, because of those things, because he wants to be with them, because he's so proud of them, because they are the, the bright shining example of his ministry. Therefore, when we could no longer stand it, We thought it was better to be left alone in Athens, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you concerning your faith so that no one will be shaken by these persecutions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. In fact, when we were with you, we told you previously that we were going to suffer persecution, and as you know, it happened. For this reason, when I could no longer stand it, I also sent him to find out about your faith, fearing that the tempter had tempted you and that our labor might be for nothing. All right, let's look at these first five verses first and see uh, what he has to remind them about persecution. Paul doesn't go into a great deal of description about persecution. He starts by saying, you knew this was coming. We gave you repeated warnings. We talked to you about this. You knew to expect Exactly what is happening. If we look at these uh, these passages, what we find here is um, Paul, first of all, he starts this chapter uh, after the therefore by saying, when we could no longer stand it. In other words, he said, when I just couldn't bear to not know what was happening in Thessalonica, he said, we made a decision. Now, on this on this uh, this book. Um, Paul is traveling with, with Silas and with Timothy and he's in Athens. And what he decides is as much as he needs Silas and as much as he needs Timothy beside him, his desire to know what was happening in Thessalonica was now so overwhelming to him that he decides I, it's actually better now for Silas and I to remain alone and send Timothy, he, he was willing to, to actually break up his team so that he would, uh, uh, the consequence was he would have less personal interaction, less personal connection. But by sending Timothy, he knew that was a way he could get a report of what was happening in Thessalonica. Now he was praying for them. We know that from, from earlier chapters. 
But his concern was persecution was starting to peak. It was really breaking out. And he wanted to make sure that the church in Thessalonica, as good as the church as it was, as strong as they were, as, as, as heartily as they were living for Christ, he wanted to make sure that the persecution had not put such pressure on them that the enemy, that, that Satan himself, was not able to tempt them to fall away from their commitments. Paul said, I, I just couldn't stand it anymore. So actually being without Timothy was the lesser of the options that I had in front of me. So I sent Timothy to you to get a report. Now, it's interesting, the language that he uses about Timothy here, he says, um, he says, uh, I lost my place. Oh, here it is. Uh, we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker. Now, what's interesting about that is brother is a pretty normal designation that Paul uses in all of his letters. It basically, in the way Paul uses it, just describes somebody that is also in the faith, a brother in the family of God. But what's unusual is he doesn't use that phrase, God's co-worker, very often. It's a unique phrase that uh, I think is meant to elevate Timothy's standing in the eyes of the Thessalonian church because... When they last knew Timothy, he was probably an intern. He was probably an associate. He was Paul's helper. He was a junior member of the team. But by now, Paul is communicating that I don't think poorly of the Thessalonian church because I'm sending Timothy. He wants them to understand I'm not sending a lackey. I'm not sending an intern. I'm not sending just somebody that I could spare that didn't mean anything. By giving Timothy the, the title God's co-worker, he is elevating Timothy to a level of a, of a person that has a ministry in his own right. This is not some underling who lacks uh, authority, but this is a valued apostolic emissary. He's sending Timothy instead of Paul himself going, but that was no slight against the Thessalonian church. <coughs> One of the great privileges that I have as senior pastor at Evergreen is that we have seen God assemble a great team of pastors in this church. Uh, it doesn't happen much anymore, but I remember early on in the life of the church, People who still were operating from other church structures that they had been familiar with, they would come to me and they would say, um, you know, Pastor, I hope you're not offended, but, but we've asked this pastor, uh, to, to, to preach mama's funeral. Or we've asked this pastor to, to do this wedding. Or, or we, we asked, because that's who we're connected with. And I would say, boy, that's exactly what we're trying to do. We do not have a structure at Evergreen where you have one star celebrity pastor and then a bunch of little junior helpers running around uh, doing whatever he tells them to do. We have a team of pastors who all have their own legitimate expression of ministry, all have their own skill sets, giftedness, and they're connected to people across the, the, the face of this church in ways that the, a senior pastor can never be. We probably have 12 to 1400 people who are covenant members, who are Sunday school members, who are regular attenders 
There's no way I can be connected to every single person at the same level that I'm connected to every single other person. Our pastoral team, they're not here to just facilitate my ministry. They've been assembled to do ministry. They are very much for us, not my helpers. They are God's co-workers. I love that phrase because what Paul is saying is, I sent Timothy to you, but there's nothing in that action that communicates that you're getting less than the best. That's the way we have it here. And any pastoral connection you have, that's the one that you go with. That's who knows your family. That's who ministers to you in times of need. And there is no uh, idea here that you get the junior varsity. We don't have a junior varsity. We have a bunch of people who can legitimately bear the title of God's co-workers. I love that, that Paul elevated Timothy in the eyes of the church so that they would understand how significant his contribution was uh, to the work that they were doing as a team. Now, it, it says here, let's read these verses again. He says, we could, when we could no longer stand it, we thought it was better to be left alone in Athens. That is, giving up Timothy's presence was was the best choice so that he could find out about the Thessalonians. We sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you concerning your faith so that no one will be shaken by these persecutions. Let's talk about that. He said, I wanted to make sure that you had somebody come who could strengthen you and encourage you because I didn't want you to be shaken by external circumstances. The temptation there was for them to have despair. The word shaken is, it can sometimes be translated unsettled. Paul was concerned that the church, because of external circumstances that they had no control over, that they would somehow be unsettled in their own spiritual condition. They would be shaken in their confidence about what they can do and who they are in Christ. If there's anything in this chapter that's going to be relevant to where we are today, it's this point right here. The idea that a church, when faced with extraordinary circumstances that are external to us and out of our control... The temptation that the enemy brings into that moment is the temptation for us to be frightened, for us to be unsettled, for us to lack confidence. You see, this is the year of seeing eternity, 2020. As it turns out in a way that I could never have predicted, this is precisely the focus that God wants us to have. And I just see the Spirit of God all over the, the, the choice of this as a focus for our year. The year of seeing eternity, the year of seeing the invisible, the hidden, finding the significance in, in events. Because I'm telling you, in the middle of this uh, pandemic, the temptation is for us to just watch the news, to just evaluate events at the at the surface level of what we can see, And it's a tremendous danger because if we only see the surface level of circumstances, we would be tempted to be unsettled, to be shaken. Paul wants them to understand there's nothing about their persecution in the same way that there's nothing about our pandemic that catches God off guard. 
Look and see what he has to say here. He says, he says, I wanted, I sent Timothy to strengthen and encourage you concerning your faith so that no one will be shaken by these persecutions. And then he says this, for you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. Now that is an awesome statement. We are appointed to this. He says, you know that. He's reminding them of something they already know. What does that phrase mean? We're appointed to this. He's talking in their generation about persecution, but we can say the same thing about the pandemic of, of 2020. We're appointed to this. In other words, God is not caught off guard. Whether it was the persecution of the church in Thessalonica in the first century or Evergreen figuring out how to do ministry and provide pastoral care in the middle of a global pandemic in 2020, the fact of the matter is there is about that not a predeterminism. This is not a statement that says that that, that there were no choices and, and this is the way things always had to happen. It implies an inevitability. That is that God is unfolding human history and no part of it is outside his control. We, like the Thessalonian church 2,000 years ago, we can find great comfort, strength, encouragement. See, he said, I want to send Timothy because I want him to strengthen you. I want him to encourage you. And part of the way he's going to do that is he's going to remind you of what I told you. And that is we're destined to face these kinds of things, but we're appointed to them. God put us in a particular generation. He made us a certain kind of church in a certain geographical location. He's put us here on purpose to face what he knew was coming. We are not hiding behind locked doors, wringing our hands, saying, oh my stars, the world is coming to an end. Even if the world was coming to an end, it would not be outside of God's control. It would not be something that catches him off guard. In this pandemic, it is a huge comfort to be reminded of what we already know and that is, none of this is accidental. God's in control. And nothing about us being here in this moment is accidental. We were appointed for this moment. We were born at the right time. We were born into the generation God wanted us to be a part of. We were, we were brought into the kingdom. We were saved by the Spirit of God. All so that at this moment, we could be appointed to do what we're doing. Now, it's different than what we expected. I'm standing in an empty room preaching to a camera, hoping that you're out there listening. We're doing what we do differently. We've had to adjust. But the fact of the matter is, we take those adjustments in stride because we're appointed to be doing what we do for the kingdom in this very moment. If you're a stay-at-home worker right now, you're appointed to the opportunities that that provides you to make contact with people to, to, you know, your schedule may have been so busy. God has given you some margin to do ministry, even if it involves social distancing. If you're still going to work, listen, we are surrounded every day in this city by a lot of people who are scared to death. 
What can we do? We have the opportunity to show them that we are strong, that we are encouraged, that we are appointed to this. We are not living in fear or caught off guard because we believe what we have already known and what Paul is now reminding us, and that is God is in control. And we were chosen to be in this generation at this moment to advance the cause of Christ. Man, that's that's huge comfort. Look at what else he says here. He says, in fact, when we were with you, we told you previously that we were going to suffer persecution. And as you know, it happened. In other words, Paul is reminding him of all the reminders that he's already given them. He said, you, you know, this is coming. One of the things that happened that happens, uh, I think, too many times in the lives of, uh, of followers of Jesus is we we see something happen like what we're going through here with this pandemic. And the question is, why? Why is this happening? And the temptation is to give that, that you know, typical mother's mother response, because, just because. But really, the why question is the wrong question. The real question is, what did we expect? We live in a broken world. It's filled with broken people. Creation itself is broken. It doesn't operate the way it was originally designed to operate. Why would we expect anything different than a world where brokenness periodically breaks out and puts itself on the front page in full view of everyone? That's what we're seeing here. We're seeing human brokenness. We're seeing creation brokenness. It's always been there, but we build up this illusion in our mind that this is the way things ought to be, and we just rock along. And periodically, the rug gets pulled out from us, and we say, wow, everything is broken. What did we expect? Of course it's broken. We're just noticing it more right now. But that doesn't change the fact that we're called to be here to touch people's lives and to do ministry every opportunity that we get. Verse 4, uh, verse, verse 5. For this reason, when I could no longer stand it, same language as verse 1, I also sent him to find out about your faith, fearing that the tempter had tempted you and that our labor might be for nothing. He was afraid that they might defect, but he wasn't worried about them uh, that defecting because they were too weak in their faith. He saw the temptation to defect from effective ministry coming from a satanic source. I would say the same thing applies to Evergreen. I have great confidence in the people of Evergreen. I've watched your, your, your walk with Christ. I've seen you minister to each other. I know the kind of love that you express in tangible ways toward each other. I don't have any fear about your standing with Christ, but I do pray that God will protect you from the temptation that comes from the enemy to make you afraid, to make you fearful, to make you go into hiding. Listen, we need to use hygienic precautions, okay? Physical distancing, I, I get that. Washing your hands, I'm, I'm for all of that. I am not one of those crazy preachers that you're seeing on TV right now 
laying claim that they can destroy the coronavirus just because they've got that kind of power or or that you can come to their church and you won't catch the virus. If I if I had that kind of bad theology, we would all be here getting sick together. I don't have any reservations about your faith, but I do know that the enemy is taking advantage of this moment to work overtime to make you afraid. That's why I keep reminding you, stay away from media reports. The media plays right into the hand of the enemy, trying to sensationalize bad news, trying to to create an apocalyptic crisis in front of you. Is this bad? Yes, it's bad. Do we need to be careful? Yes, we need to be careful. Should we have all kinds of social gathering and physical distancing precautions? Absolutely. Do we still win at the end of the day? Yes. And Satan is trying to put us in neutral. And we won't accept it. We're in drive. We are moving forward. We're adjusting to do it in new ways. But you, be strengthened and encouraged because we knew the brokenness of the world was going to break out at some point in bigger and, and, and crazier ways. Well, now it has. Why? I don't know why. But what did you expect is the question. That's the real question. And because we knew it, And because we know that God is big enough, it builds us up to be able in new ways to do what we've always been called to do. He reminded them about persecution. I would say for us, it's a reminder about pandemic. (laughs) Look at the next section. Beginning in verse 6, he's going to remind us about power. Verse 6 says, But now Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news about your faith and love and reported that you always have good memories of us, wanting to see us as we also want to see you. Therefore, brothers, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you through your faith. For now we live if you stand in the Lord. How can we thank God for you in return for all the joy we experience because our God, before our God because of you, as we pray very earnestly night and day to see you face to face and to complete what is lacking in your faith. This is an awesome uh, section because Paul is going to say, uh, Timothy's back. He's made the trip to see you. He came back. He's now here. He's brought the report. He's told us about what what is going on in Thessalonica. And we were hugely encouraged. Listen, in Greek, these verses are one long rambling sentence. Uh, Paul typically writes where he just sort of stacks uh, modifying phrases on top of each other. And sometimes uh, his sentence in Greek will go on for verses and verses. When we translate it into English, we break it out into uh, multiple sentences because it would just be unwieldy to translate it literally and, and have this monster sentence that, that, that would take a, a page and a half to diagram. So you have to know what the heart of the matter is, what the subject, the main subject and predicate of these verses. And in everything that Paul says here, the the main part of this sentence is we were encouraged. That doesn't show up uh, right away. 
but that's uh, it shows up in verse 7 but we were encouraged about you through your faith everything else in those verses is a modifier so he is telling them that he took the report that came from Thessalonica and he received it as good news he received it as good news first of all oh and by the way that that word good news um it is the word gospel but here Paul is not using it in the technical sense of the content of our faith. He's using it in the more everyday mundane sense of the word in, in ancient Greek, which was welcome news or, or news that was received uh, with real enthusiasm. He says, we got the report, the good news that we were hoping for. But he says, I'm mostly encouraged, first of all, by... Your shared faithfulness. Listen, listen again to those verses. Timothy has come to us with good news about your faith and love and reported that you always have good memories of us wanting to see us as we also want to see you. In other words, everything that Paul felt for this church was reciprocated by the church toward Paul. We saw that in, in, in chapter two. One of the great blessings to a pastor and to a church is to have a pastor-church relationship that is built on uh, mutual love and affection. They loved Paul, and Paul loved them. And I don't know about you, but, but, but many of us have been in churches where the relationship between the pastor and the people was more adversarial. It was more, um, it, it was, it was filled with tension. It was more of a boss-employee kind of relationship or a, or a boss-hiree relationship. Um, the, the church doesn't function well in those kinds of scenarios. The church functions best when the pastor can't think of being anywhere else except with this particular group of people. And this particular group of people... Uh, wouldn't choose anybody else to be pastor and say, well, boy, that's, that's a high bar to, to, to aspire to. Yeah, actually it is. But don't you think that that's just like God to set that as the goal, as the intention that he has for every church? Doesn't he want every single congregation to have a pastor that they love and trust and follow and doesn't every, doesn't God want every single pastor to be in a church where they're appreciated and they can serve shoulder to shoulder alongside people to, to advance the kingdom? Listen, it is the enemy that gets into churches and makes them filled, be filled with rivalries and, and contentions and disagreements. Paul is painting a picture here of what a church ought to look like. And I love that when I look at Evergreen, I feel what Paul is describing here. Thank you for being Evergreen. Thank you for letting me be your pastor. Well, he says, Therefore, brothers, in all of our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you through your faith. See, Paul's going through his own kind of persecution, but he says, there's nothing that builds me up in the middle of my problems like being reminded of how well the church is doing. And then this, I know it's hard to put read emotion or inflection in the written word, 
But, but verse 8 is a broken sentence in, in the Greek. It's as if Paul is speaking and, and he's so choked with emotion as he thinks about this church and as he thinks about how proud he is of them and, and as he thinks about how, uh, how awesome they are. It chokes him up. He says, for now we live if you stand firm in the Lord. You say, well, what's he saying? Is he saying that only as they stand firm does he actually have life? Think about it like this. Um, think about a newlywed couple, husband and wife, just married, head over heels in love. And, and he turns to her and he says, I can't live without you. Well, he's not using literal language. It's not that when she walks out the door, he's going to die. We understand how that language is used. It's a figurative, almost poetic way of saying, my life is made complete because you're a part of it. That's what Paul is saying here. If I could translate it a little more smoothly, it's as if he's saying, when I see how you stand firm in the Lord, that's when I really live. My life is made, uh, is charged with energy, with passion, with, with power. When I see what God is doing in you. Listen, it ought to be said of every pastor that as he sees God move among the people of his church, that 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 lights his fire, that flips his switch, charges his battery. That's what Paul is saying here, but there's so much emotion. In Greek, it's a broken sentence. It's as if he's saying, I, I, I don't have life until I see what God is doing in you. And that just fills me up. Verse 9, how can we thank God? Let me, let me insert a word here that I think will capture the meaning of what Paul is saying here. I think what, uh, what would help us understand it better is, is if we translate it this way. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we experience before our God because of you? What a great sentence. He's saying, here's, here's what he's saying. Maybe you feel this way about your church family. I hope that you do. Paul is saying, I have received so many blessings from my connection to the Thessalonian church. I actually can't string enough words together to thank God adequately for what he's done here. You see, the reality is gratitude is important in the life of a believer because, honestly, we can't ever pay back anything God has done for us. We certainly can't pay back for our salvation. It's not something we could have ever achieved on our own. It's not something we could ever have earned in any way. We can't repay God adequately for salvation. But it's not only salvation, it's all the other blessings of our life. The blessings that he gives us in the giftedness that he gives us that, he, that allows us to, to be an effective contributor to the cause of Christ in our generation. The blessings that come from being in a church family where we are bonded together as family, sometimes closer even than our biological families. 
when we look at the blessings that God provides for us, gratitude is the only response that we can have. But we are painfully aware that we could say thank you for 10,000 years and still not get to the level where we could communicate adequately to God just how we feel about everything that he's done for us. I find it pretty interesting here that that Paul is not thanking the Thessalonians necessarily for being a great blessing to him. He's giving God all the credit. Why would he do that? Because the kind of church the Thessalonian church had become was not because they had figured out how to do church better than anybody else. It was because as they walked with Jesus faithfully day by day, God had done something to create this supernatural reality of a great church. Listen, if you're in a great church, it is always God that's responsible. It's not the pastor, it's not the people, it's not the structure. Now we, we want to have the right relationships, we want to have the right structure, we want to follow the biblical blueprint, but it's what God does that always uh, accomplishes this intangible bond that we share in Jesus Christ. And so Paul is saying, I, I'm thanking God, but I can't thank Him enough. Because of all the blessings I've received from being a part of this church, I, I, I can never adequately pay God back in gratitude for what he's done. I think that is an awesome testimony of a pastor about his church. He says, he says, we pray very earnestly night and day to see your face, see you face to face and to complete what is lacking in your faith. <coughs> Two things there. He said, he tells them what his prayer is. He's praying for the, for the Thessalonians. And first of all, he's praying that, that we'll get to see you again. Uh, he's already sent Timothy in his place because he couldn't go. Timothy's brought back a great report. He's been encouraged. But still, Paul's not really satisfied because what he wants is he wants to hug them. He wants to, to be in their presence. He wants to share a meal together. Basically, he's praying in his day what I'm praying in my day, which is, man, I can't wait to see you again. I'm talking to you on the phone. I'm getting text messages and using social media, and, and we're doing our best to stay connected. But but with Paul, I would say it, it's not the same. I'm praying for us to be able to cross paths, to, to worship together, to... To, to hug and, and to laugh and, and to love being in each other's presence. That was his first prayer request. But his second prayer request is even a little bit more significant. He says, I'm praying that I'll not only get to see you face to face, but that I'll have the opportunity to complete your spiritual walk. In other words, uh, the text actually says, complete what is lacking in your faith. You say, now wait a minute, you just described this as a great church, probably the best church in the New Testament. Yes, it is. But guess what? No matter how great we are as a church, we've never arrived. We are always becoming more. We are always becoming more Christ-like. We're always becoming uh, uh, more influential in, in the practice of our ministry. We're always becoming more than we are now. 
I think this was Paul's way of reminding them that as, as solid as you are and as proud as I am, I want to get back with you because I think there are new heights for us to achieve. I think there are new places for us to go, and I want to be a part of that. Last December, you remember back when we were still meeting together, uh, we celebrated 20 years as a church. Over the course of that year, we looked at missions that we've done, 85 countries at that point around the world. We've celebrated family life and discipleship and the number of people being discipled. We celebrated a lot last year. But the one thing that we could not do is come together on our 20th anniversary and say, man, we have arrived. Look at everything that we've done. We are, we are good. We've, we've achieved what we set out to achieve. No. If you remember that day, what I did was I laid out the next generation. The next season for the life of our church. Why? Because there's always something more. There's always work still to be accomplished. There's always influence still to be exerted. There's always expansion still to be achieved. The kingdom is not finished. We have not finished advancing the kingdom until Christ comes and declares that the kingdom is complete. That's what Paul is reminding the Thessalonians. Man, you guys are doing great. And he builds them up. But he said, I want to get back there because I want us to go to even greater heights. Man, that is my desire for Evergreen. is for us to take everything that God has accomplished here and then just go on to greater heights from there. Well, look at the final section of this chapter. He's going to remind us about prayer. In verse 11, this is where he actually gives the prayer that he mentions uh, in, in the previous verses. In verse 11, he says, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and overflow with love for one another and for everyone, just as we also do for you. May he make your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. Amen. Okay, you remember in verse 10, he said, I'm praying very earnestly night and day. To see you face to face and to complete what is lacking in your faith. Okay? He gave them the content of his prayer. Well, now, in these closing verses, he actually gives them the prayer. See if you can see the content. He said, we're praying very earnestly night and day to see you face to face. Well, what does verse 11 say? The first part of his prayer is, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus. By the way, that is a powerful identification of Jesus and God both equally uh, appropriate to receive his prayer request. This is a subtle but powerful affirmation that Jesus Christ is divine. Do not let any cult that knocks on your door tell you that Jesus was just a good man. The Bible's witness over and over and over again is that he was divine. He was present with the Father in the Trinity. He was a part of creation from eternity past until he rules in eternity future. Paul is praying to God our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus, because they are deserving of the prayer requests. Here's his first request, though. Direct our way to you. See, that's the, that's the actual wording of the content that he mentioned in the earlier verse. 
I'm asking God to make it possible in the unfolding of the schedule of my life for me to be a part of you. Now, it's interesting, direct our way to you. Um, there's almost in Greek, I, 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 I thought about whether I should say this or not. The language of the, of the Greek seems to imply it, this translation says direct our, our way to you. Um, the Greek probably more accurately says clear our way to you. I find that compelling because it's not Paul just praying that God would let me come. It seems to imply that the in, that Paul's inability to come is because of some sort of spiritual warfare hindrance, some satanic opposition. Paul is asking God to step into the circumstance to make it possible for the hindrances, the obstacles, the impediments to his return to Thessalonica, those be removed. So instead of um, asking God to direct our way, it, it may be a little bit uh, more accurate to say, uh, I'm asking God and our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ to clear our way to you, to make a path. Listen, that is not a bad prayer request right now for Evergreen. Lord, we are going to do whatever we need to do right now, given the reality of the circumstances of, of, of this moment. But Lord, clear the way for us to be together again. Man, don't, don't just take circumstances as they come. Let's get on our knees and ask God to step into this moment and do something extraordinary. Now, this is not some goofball TV preacher who's, who, who's blowing into the camera as though he can make the coronavirus go away. I wouldn't trust that guy as far as I could throw him. But I do find myself coming to God and saying, you are the one that can make this different. Lord, I know that you're accomplishing things that I'll never know about in this moment. There are lives being touched and changed in remarkable ways. But Father, I'm asking you to clear the hindrances to your church being able to be together again as a church. That was the first prayer request. You remember verse 10. He says the second one is uh, that I want to come so that I can complete what is lacking in your faith. I told you he's praying that because they're not fully who they are to be. There's always something else. Well, he in his prayer that he records in the closing verses, he's going to give us the content of, of what exactly that looks like. What does it mean to complete their faith? What is lacking in their faith? That's verse 12. He says, and may the Lord cause you to increase and overflow with love for one another and for everyone, just as we also do for you. He's praying for them to be a loving church, for them to have an overflowing love, a spiritual growth that is characterized uh, by that love. He wants them to be known by that. I mean, even the words of Jesus, he commented to the disciples. He said, listen, when people look at you, they're going to know you belong to me by the way they see you love one another. Our relationship with Christ is given tangible credibility by the practical way we love each other. 
Paul says, this is a church in Thessalonica, this is a church characterized by that love. But he's not just praying that they'll keep it up. He says, I'm praying that you will see your love increase and overflow. In other words, there is always room for more love. Well, look at what he says last. The last verse. May he make your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all of his saints. Let me talk to you about that. Blameless in holiness. Holy is a misunderstood word in our generation. Because holiness is typically associated with either moral legalism... That is, to be holy is to keep a strict set of, of regulations of do's and don'ts. Holiness is associated with moral legalism, or it's often associated with a kind of um, uh, complex theology. That, that somehow you're holy if you have some elaborately, um, uh, some elaborate scheme of explaining uh, the world and everything that's in it. Uh, there's a reason that he preceded verse 13 with verse 12. Because let me tell you something. The complexity of your theology and the moral level of your behavior are completely compromised as testimonies to Christ if they are not infused with an ever-increasing and overflowing love. I don't care what you believe until I see how you love. Do you need to have correct theology? Yes. And that's why I'm going to keep teaching. Do you need to have moral behavior? Yes. That's why we're going to keep holding each other accountable. But none of it matters unless we are increasing and overflowing in our love. What a great pastor's prayer for his people. He said, I'm praying that we can be together face to face, that the obstacles to our, uh, to, to our assembling together will be removed. And I'm going to pray that, that your love increases and overflows. How do you know that love is overflowing? Because love always breaks out in practical helps and ministries to the people around you. We live in a generation that thinks love is an emotion. It's, oh, oh, I love you. I love you. Don't tell me you love me. Show me. It works in marriages. It works in families. It works in churches. Love should overflow, and overflowing love is not sentiment or emotion. It is action on behalf of somebody else that flows out of no other motive than I want what's best for them. And Paul says, and then I'm going to continue to teach you how to be morally uh, superior, how to be uh, theologically attuned to the truth. But we're going to do it in the context of a loving family that loves to be together. Man, there's not anything in chapter 3 that the Thessalonian church didn't already know. It's a chapter filled with reminders. 
But Paul is just using repetition to make the case that what they already knew, they needed to to hold on to even tighter. 2,000 years later, the church in Evergreen, we already know all these things. There's not any new information in this chapter that you didn't already know. But they're great reminders for us to pray for each other, for us to pray for God to intervene into in our circumstances so that we can once again be together, for us to, to live in the power of who we are in Christ, for us to see the pandemic around us as an expression of the broken world, but, but without fear that somehow God has fallen off of his throne. We knew all of this, but Paul is reminding us what we already know so that we can wake up tomorrow morning with confidence, with passion, with energy. And we can make the world in this particular moment, we can make the world different because we were appointed to this. We are the people to take the gospel in this moment of time. Don't wish that you lived in some other generation. You are precisely at the time and space in human history that you need to be because you are the man, you are the woman for the hour in your sphere of influence right now. You know that. Now it's time to remember it and practice it. Father, thank you. Your word is powerful. And this chapter, while it is not new information by and large, it is a great reminder of what we've already been taught, what we already know. Lord, I pray for the people who are called Evergreen. I pray that we will see the obstacles to our assembling together to be removed, Lord, as quickly as possible. I pray that the love that we have would not just be emotion or sentiment, but it will be expressed in tangible and practical ways as we serve one another and advance the cause of Christ, that the people outside the church of Evergreen would be touched by the love that we have and that they will see the credibility of the gospel because they see the life that we live. Lord, I pray that you will help us to learn, that you will help us to pursue, that you will help us to grow spiritually, never to become self-satisfied that we are uh, already arrived, but that we are constantly striving, pressing into becoming more like Jesus. Father, do that among us. Lord, we pray. We know that's your will, so we pray it with confidence. Bless your people who have been placed in my care. Father, make me adequate to this moment in time. Make them influential in this generation and may we be may we bring pride to you as you look down and contemplate our service to the kingdom thank you father keep your people safe but make them strong and ready to face whatever comes because we serve we live we take our breath in jesus name amen